Hello, dear listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Painting Pictures. I'm Gabriel Roberts, a.k.a. Dr. Wacky Backy, coming to you from Paonia, Colorado, a beautiful little town on the western slope where the living's easy and I've got furry socks on. And I have a microphone that I purchased specifically for making podcasts and a pop screen, so I can say pop without it popping in your ears. Um, also specifically for making podcasts, and I didn't use either of those on recording the intro for this podcast about an hour ago. But the intro to this podcast um, was funny nonetheless. It just has a really annoying crackle to it. So I'm including it, but if you'd like to um, skip the crackle and go straight to the crickle, (laughs) which is crackle-free... Skip ahead, please, to the 18 and a half minute mark, and you'll get right into the podcast with today's guest, Chris Gar, a dear friend and a very active member of the um, Paonia and Colorado in general environmental um, fight. Uh, a, just a brilliant guy, um, improv comic, um, jack of all trades. Um, dear friend, and I'm so grateful for his time on this podcast. I hope you enjoy it. The website for the podcast is GabeRobertsArt.com, and the email for the podcast is GabeRobertsArt at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Um, It's a great episode, and we've got a lot of fresh episodes on the way here in 2015, the year of the pen, (laughs) ballpoint pen that is. All right, folks. Now, please um, enjoy the crackle intro, or like I said, skip ahead to 18 and a half minutes for the podcast. Thank you. Good morning, you crazy mother funkies. This is Gabriel Roberts. You are listening to the Painting Pictures podcast. Coming to you from Paonia, Colorado, I'm in my bathrobe, and I'm wondering why I brought, or I didn't bring back my thicker terry cloth robe, and instead I'm wearing this flimsy plaid robe. This robe really truly belongs in Sacramento, where it's never very cold, and my terry cloth robe really belongs here in Paonia, where it's often, or it gets a little colder. So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to engineer this switch, getting one robe back and the other robe back here. And I even even considered this before leaving this last time. I knew this was going to be an issue, and I ignored it because I was like, I've got too much stuff, and one more bathrobe is going to put me over the edge. So I left it, and now I'm uh, regretting that. But Nonetheless, life is good here in Paonia. I'm back. I'm healthy. I am congestion-free. I played soccer last night. Uh, All of my toes are wiggling just like beautiful, sweet little piggies that they are. And I'm excited to be producing some podcasts, finally. We've got a great episode for you today. It's a conversation between myself... Uh, me, and Chris Gar, who is a very interesting guy. <laughs> he's, uh, he's, he's got a lot going on. 
and we get into some discussion primarily of Paonia itself and the structure, political structure of this little town, and we talk about fracking, and um, that's at the end, it's not like the major thrust of the podcast, but fracking is such a buzzword, I just had to put it up in the beginning and use it in the title of this podcast. So, you've got that to look forward to. Um, I made bone broth yesterday. It's, it's all the rage these days. Get some beef bones and boil them for hours and hours and hours. I mean, hours and hours and hours. And you get bone broth. So, I, I, I went down to the local bone shop and I got myself a bag of bones. And I saw it's, it's a blob, a frozen mass of bone and ligament and meat. It's rather indistinguishable. You don't know, you know, where this comes from, but I, I did see on the, uh, what's it called? That thing that's like a sticker that they put on the outside of a bag, a label. On the label, it said, knuckle, beef knuckle bones. And I thought, cows don't have hands or feet. <laughs> How they gonna have knuckles, yo? They don't have no fingers and no toes. Well, turns out a cow has four knuckles, I guess, one for each foot, and as my massive frozen bone and tissue boiled down and a lot of the fat disappeared and the bones began to distinguish themselves a little bit, I realized that I essentially had a massive uh, hoof. Not the hoof, but whatever, you know, the foot, the bone, the bone foot, the foot bone, cow foot bone, <laughs> massive cow foot bone in uh, my pot of water boiling on the stove. And, uh, well, I guess, Charlie, it grossed me out just a little bit, but I continued boiling it and, um... You know, and I'm not even a person that's grossed out by feet. I know some of you out there turn your noses up at, at feet and bare feet and just feet. And true, there are some nasty feet out there. There are some pretty gross feet. There are some people in my uh, in my family. I'm not going <laughs> to name any names. And not my immediate family, but uh, in the you know, extended family, <laughs> some pretty nasty fee. And, you know, that's primarily a fungal issue. <laughs> fungal issue. Um, but, yeah, I was kind of grossed out by this big old beef foot, cow foot, balling in my stove. And, and then you got to boil the thing for, like, I don't know. I think the recommended boil age is at least 12 hours. And when my dad makes it, he boils it for like at least 24 hours. Well, I did seven because I got tired of my home smelling like beef foot. <laughs> and I, I was gone, you know, out of the house for most of the day and I left the windows open. And I did this neat little trick where I left the window in my bedroom open and closed the door. <laughs> See what I did there? See what I did there? So that the beef bone, beef foot smell 
wouldn't penetrate my room. And then when I came home in the afternoon and I wanted to take an afternoon nap, well, I just slipped on in there, didn't smell like beef foot, and I had myself a nice nap. But by 4 o'clock, um, I was ready for my place not to smell like beef bone. And I knew that coming up I was going to have to close the windows for the oncoming night. The oncoming night. The cold night approaches. One must close one's windows and stop boiling the beef broth. And so I did. I turned it off and I figured, you know what, beef foot, you've done your part. Uh, I let it cool down. I went and played soccer. Woo! Soccer! Yes! Yes! Soccer! Wow, what a sport. <clears throat> Gonna get me some new cleats. Uh, I realize I've had the same pair of cleats since high school, which is about 12 years. 12 years I've been rocking the same set of cleats. I think Gaby can, uh, I think Gaby can spring for a new set of cleats, don't you? Thanks. Um, got home from soccer, and I'm not gonna give you the whole, you think I'm gonna sit here and tell you my entire day? Come on. <laughs> Come on, I'm summarizing. I'm going to stick to the important points. Stick to the bones. Uh, place smelled a little less like beef broth, having uh, not been cooking for two hours and the windows open. So I, <clears throat> I closed the windows and uh, I tasted some of the bone broth and it was bony. <laughs> It was bony. Uh, good thing I got this pop screen here. I would have just blown snot into your face. Because <laughs> your face is the microphone. Remember? Did we talk about this? This, this is, I think, a failed podcast intro. I referred to you, dear listener, as the glowing green light on the top of uh, my phallus microphone. And this microphone really does look like a phallus, and... Um, you're the growing, glowing green light right on the, uh, the top of the phallus, uh, just below the head. So in case you're wondering, you know, what you look like to me, well, that's pretty much it. If you'd like to look like something else, why go ahead and send me a picture of yourself, um, and I will print it out. And I will paste it over the glowing green light, and I'll then be looking at your face. And you can send that picture to the email address for the podcast, which is Gabe Roberts Art, G-A-B-E-R-O-B-E-R-T-S-A-R-T, at gmail.com. Hit me, yo. Hit me there, and I'll hit you back, yo. Anyway, so back to the massive foot boiling in my pot. Um... I had some beef broth, it was pretty good, uh, and then I went and I celebrated Monday with a $5 margarita. <laughs> I went and had a margarita at the bistro with some friends, some buddies that will have played the soccer when we, ha- when we have some margaritas. I just had one margarita and then I got really tired and so I came home and I didn't know what I was going to eat. I had a smoothie all prepped in the fridge, <laughs> you know, banana peeled, <laughs> uh, orange juice squeezed, 
you know, cilantro um, <laughs> washed and tossed in there. <laughs> Cucumber peeled, chopped, sliced. <laughs> um, yogurt hadn't been poured yet, but other than that, the smoothie was ready to go. Yo, I was ready to put that blender on the blender and blend it. But I thought, I just played soccer. I'm about to go to sleep. I'm not sure that that's like the right food for me. So I thought I'm going to try to make something savory. And I thought, well, I have this massive pot of beef broth. I'll, I'll make a little bowl of beef broth. And so I scooped some into a little pan, started heating it up. My, I threw in some potatoes, um, cooked some leftover potatoes, garlic and onion, and some greens. And I had myself a little soup. Well, it turns out it was just like a little too much bone broth, if you ask me. Because I proceeded to toss and turn in bed, um, feeling slightly sick to my stomach. I considered uh, throwing up, you know, purging, as it were. I thought of food poisoning crossed my mind. I thought, did I not boil this long enough? Does that matter? Do you have to boil it for 12 hours for it not to get you sick with beef foot disease? Are, you, is it, are beef foots not even supposed to be used for boiling? Because they're disgusting. Uh, but I basically just needed to burp a lot. And fart a little bit. Uh, and so all I got to say, Charlie, is I'm glad you weren't in bed with me last night. Because <clears throat> beef broth, beef bone broth, breath. Beef bone broth breath is bad. Um... Uh, no, there's no way to sugarcoat it. It don't smell good. And when you eat too much beef bone broth, you're going to have some bad breath. So, Charlie, thank your lucky stars. You were not next to me last night as I tossed, turned, farted, and burped. But finally, uh, I did manage to digest the beef bone broth and, and sleep. Last point about beef bone broth. Uh, then you've got a mess on your hands. Okay, you've got fat. Basically, you've got a lot of fat. <laughs> it's in liquid form, and it's in steam form, and it's all over your kitchen. You've got a pot that's covered in fat. You've got a ladle that's covered in fat. You've got a pot lid that's covered in fat. And this is, you know, partially burned, crusted, mostly just fat, fat. Uh, and then you've got a tiny pan that's covered in fat, and you've got a strainer that's covered in fat. Now, thank God I have the type of strainer that is all metallic and has holes and is not one of those mesh things. Charlie, if you are thinking of making beef bone broth and you are at the straining part where you pour your bones off, you know, and just get the broth, I really highly caution you against the use of a mesh strainer because that thing is going to be disgusting and impossible to clean. Um, anyway, I had a, oh, and you have a massive bowl. So I had a massive metal bowl that I set the metal strainer in and then I poured the pot in. So I had about 25 big metal cook things covered in beef bone fat. I washed some of them last night. I couldn't even get them all into my sink. I couldn't even fit them in my sink. I was... I had soap bubbles flying everywhere, beef bone fat flying everywhere. It was a kitchen nightmare, yo. And then this morning I get up and, um, you know, it doesn't smell like beef bone broth anymore, but there's still beef bone fat. It's like I had to wash everything twice. Um, not to mention, I had to do something which 
a lot of you would really cringe at, which is get a plastic bag and um, scoop out <laughs> the foot that is like disintegrating. Um, it has this wild, uh, it's like two bones, and in between the bones is this layer of purple, um, <laughs> uh, looks like a, um, sea cucumber. It looks like a purple <laughs> kind of heart-shaped sea cucumber. Oh my god. Woo! <laughs> Uh, so I had to scoop all that out and put it in a plastic bag. Now, the plastic bag, of course, had a small leak in it, so then I had to just sort of bundle it in my hands and quickly whisk it out the door and to the trash can. So that's something, you know, a lot of people will just, they get to that stage and they're like, um, what do I do now? <laughs> yeah, you just gotta scoop that sh shite up, <clears throat> put it in a bag and take it out. Well, I figure I can probably eat vegetarian for about a week now since I've had all that beef bone broth, and, um, yeah, I, I kind of want to just eat cucumbers all day and fart sweet-smelling cucumber breath. So, that's an anecdote for you. I think it's time to get on to the podcast. Um, it's 2015, folks, and, ah, uh, gosh, I'm excited about this year, and I'm excited about this podcast. I know I've said it before. I'm not going to make any promises, but feels like there's a lot of these coming down the pipeline, and I, uh, I hope you'll be along for the ride. Again, if you have any questions, send me a Gmail to the email address, gaberobertsart at gmail.com, and you can visit my website, gaberobertsart.com, and you can check out pictures of art, and you can go to the blog section, I'll post um, an entry for each of these podcasts with pertinent information. Um, possibly a picture of Chris Gar, if you're lucky. So, everyone, please welcome with your hearts and your minds and your kneecaps the lovely and talented Chris Gar. Welcome back. Oh, thanks. It's yeah, been a long time. It has been a long time. Last time was out on the, the deck of that undisclosed house sitting. Yes, that no one situation. knows the address of publicly. No one knows. <laughs> it's not shared publicly. Uh, yeah, we had winter since then. Um, kind of back to the weather we were before. Yeah, pretty much. It was pretty cool this morning, though, actually. Mm -hmm. Still making the fires in the fireplace. But we're pretty much there. Bagels sold out this morning. That's a sign of increased activity in Paonia. Extra I guess. calories needed. 
Yeah. So some people left, like you did, and didn't come back. And I don't know if they will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have yet to see the fresh crop of Peonia hopefuls who come for the first time and stay for the summer. Right. They'll be coming this spring, you I, suspect? I, I suspect. We've only do. just done one year here, but that's the way it happened last year. Yeah, so you're one... You've only done one year here. Well, I here. came in November. And so I did a winter, a summer, and then a winter. You I did the winter in the yurt? Yeah, but I won't do that again. I, I won't do a winter again next year, for sure. Just like last year when I said I wouldn't do this winter, now I'm saying I won't do <laughs> next winter. Absolutely. And you're, you're sure of it? A hundred percent. Where are you going to go? Oh, maybe L.A.? Uh, maybe it's warm there, yeah. Oh, it's warm there. Yeah. No, I mean, maybe. Comma, yeah. it's warm there. Oh. <laughs> Comma, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah. That might be the place. I don't really know. I'm going to leave it. Uh, last winter, it was freezing cold a lot. Way colder than this winter. And um, I remember thinking to myself, I wanted to be in a place, because I've grown up in cold places. I've grown up in Montana and New York. And, and there's always the... Basically sitting on your butt and hoping that winter ends sooner than it actually does. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, for once in my life, since I seem to spend so much time in cold places anyway, I ought to go someplace where there's a culture of cold. Mm. Where enough of the time is freezing cold, a place like Alaska or whatnot, where enough of the time it's cold and dark that people develop their culture around that as mm. opposed to their culture around the summer. And then and you're then, just enduring the... Exactly. So you actually huh. want the winter. I mean, if I was a skier or snowboarder or something, it might be that way now, but I'm not. So, um, next winter I'll either go someplace warm uh, and piss off, or sure, I will... really cold. Yeah, go to, like, Siberia. <laughs> never been, I've never been to Siberia. Yeah, I hear it's great dying alone <laughs> in, a, in a shelter poorly made shelter somewhere <laughs> that's pretty much my plan are you committed do you think uh, to the winters in- I don't know I don't know I could do it now that I have a, a couch and a rug and like if I had more time to prepare and I don't know though I don't I don't know that there's like much of a point to it if you have the option to go somewhere where you're more comfortable. Mm. Maybe there's a point to some of it, but the whole winter seems kind of long. Okay, so here's the point. I know the point. Um, most of the Native Americans that lived in North America during, you know, 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, were nomadic. So they would go south when during everything the else was south. Except the ones that didn't were called Utes, U-T-E. The Ute is not a tribe. The Ute Indians are Indians that stay put. Huh. Yeah, and the only Indians that haven't been slammed into reservations and um, basically completely crushed culturally are the Utes. Really? Because they had a similar concept of the land, which is that this is ours, we live here, and we own it. The ones that stayed. So... You can either embrace the nomadic life, like you're talking about, uh, and uh, you know fall under the gun of the new white man, mm-hmm. or stay put, hold your ground, and then and then continue doing that into the future, the corporate industrial future of America. Right. And you can still have this little fenced-in trailer. 
right? I thought I, that's interesting. I thought that all the Indians are uh, migrated south during the winter. Mm-mm. Did they live in teepees still? So teepees um, are actually a recent invention. It's only about four or five hundred years old. Teepees were invented um, by eastern Indians, Indians that lived on the east side of the United States as the um, as the white man came in and pushed them out. And, and teepees were invented as a mobile home so you could get away from Whitey. Oh. that they had long long houses yeah you had long houses and and all sorts of different shelters made out of wood uh and um homes unless yeah. you want to call today's shelter shelter it's funny right like we call ours a political party we call theirs a tribe right right ours is a house theirs is a dwelling dwelling <laughs> it's like wait, what <laughs> yeah yeah i was just just yesterday, I decided that I'm going to start calling this a house. Yeah. As opposed to a trailer. Right. Because. It's not being towed anywhere. Yeah. Anytime soon. And the house <laughs> doesn't have to mean anything. Right. Other than the place you live. Right. Yeah. So, there was a time, back to the Indians, because clearly that's what you're asking me about. <laughs> <laughs> there was a time when, when, um. Native Americans had worked groups of buffalo because buffalo are perfectly suited for for North American terrain. They endure the winter without tending to them at all. They eat just about everything that grows in the ground because they're so furry. They're yeah, they're just tough. Yeah. They're tough, and yet at the same time, the meat is really tender and it's really large. You get a lot, you know, one buffalo, and you get quite a American bison, whatever. Mm-hmm. You get a ton of meat out of it, mm-hmm. and then almost every part of it is usable, or every part mm-hmm. depending on what you're doing. Yeah, even the testicles, right? They make good hats, yeah. and then <laughs> or earrings, and um, they're perfect, right? And so, even more eastward, um, non-plains Indians recognized the value of buffalo, and so they actually herded American bison across the continent. Whoa! And cult, and you know, they didn't fence them, but the buffalo are only going to go so far, hmm. and so they would kind of like chase them around in circles. Wow. Year after year and keep a yeah. group going. And so this required a bit of governance because you weren't going to replace any with a natural. You only just had your one little thing. So you'd be like your head of cattle, basically. And if some other guy comes and just, you know, kills 10 of them, it's a serious impact to you. Right. So that's why a lot of the, um, like, governance structures of multiple tribes, uh, I go use the word tribe, but civilizations of Indians uh, you know that came out of the east coast where you had imported materials and stuff like that you also had irrigation canals and farm fields and everything I mean all kinds of stuff going on very active on the east coast was the imported area so they were the ones that were luckily more adept at dealing with white man as far as trade and whatnot it worked for a while until disease hit came with and then because they, they had already they kind of adapted to each other, to different lifestyles and whatnot. Mm. I can't remember the name of it, but there's one in the book 1491 I read about this um, group, uh, I want to say Massachusetts or something. One of the first, um, so the pilgrims came over, right? But then there's also, uh, mm-hmm. I can't remember his name, I'm useless. 
need some tea. But John Smith? No, no, no. This guy you rarely hear about. He was there for ten years and he set up a civilization. And he was not um, there as a Puritan or anything like this, and um, was very friendly with the Indians and all that kind of stuff. Over so on they the were, East Coast? Yeah, just uh, you know, five miles away from uh-huh. from Plymouth Rock. Uh-huh. And uh, his encampment, which had a, you know a hundred or so white guys, they were they were doing trade and they were like, they had you know, inter whatever you want to call it, they partied with the Indians yeah, and uh, <laughs> having a, a good time, uh, an ungodly good time, yeah. as the, uh, you know, pilgrims said. <laughs> and eventually the pilgrims just went over and killed them all. Um, but um, they were doing it. They were, like, mixing cultures and having a good time with it. Um, but he described one uh, particular vein of... I don't know if it's a tribe or whatever the division is, but a specific group of people that lived there that were really, um, uh, it's called, no, they're, it's not, um, it's English words I'm thinking of. Um, they're basically, um, uh, fiercely non-hierarchical. Okay. That's like a really clinical way of saying it because I can't remember the right words. Uh-huh. But they they are so opposed to any sort of hierarchy among humans that they that that's the purest of all evil wow. is to try to assert dominance over another human being. Wow. And consequently, the greatest thing, the meaning of life, is to not have anyone above you or below you. Yeah. And to be an equal playing field. So everything is about, you know, uh, keeping things equal. So if you, um, if you hoard, if you have food and someone else is hungry, you're a criminal. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you have resources and someone else needs resources and you know that and you don't supply, Hmm. you're a criminal. Cool. Like punishable by death kind of criminal. This is the same as if in our culture, if you stole from somebody. Right. You're basically flipped. This is a, this is a group of of Native Americans? Yeah, you know, a decent sized tribe that or whatever. This guy kind of associated with? Yeah, yeah. And so they were difficult to um, to trade with uh, and manipulate and whatnot because it always had oh, to be equal. Sure. I mean, he liked them. He, yeah. he admired their um, resistance to that, you know, hierarchical structure and whatnot. Yeah, they must but at the same be. time, they were like total free thinkers. Every single one of them is like ultra hippie. Right. So. Yeah, you imagine like if Cortez had encountered that sort of a civilization as opposed to the Aztecs, which were extremely hierarchical. Yeah, yeah. it would be difficult to bust them apart. Yeah, it's like Switzerland, it's like right? Water or something. Well, Switzerland, you got it's neutral country, but every male goes through two years of military training and gets a fully automatic weapon that he keeps in his really in his closet. No way. So every Swiss citizen is armed and trained. <laughs> now they never fight and they have no army. Do they but, get a knife too? Um, I with... think it's got lots of tools on it. <laughs> yeah. uh, comes with the house. Uh, so, you know, do you want to invade them? I mean, probably a few tanks and planes and stuff, whatever, but still, yeah, you're going to hit resistance with every person you meet. Right. I like that. Yeah, it's kind of Yeah, everybody being a, a complete complete person, self-sufficient. Yeah, and shockingly, there isn't all that kind of, like, uh, shootings and hmm. 
Even though everyone has an automatic weapon and knows how to use it, they don't go around blasting each other. It is interesting. So I don't know if taking when taking away guns is that gonna wouldn't people just knife each other then? Like in the other. old days, yeah. I saw a pretty brutal killing on the wire last night. You seen that show? Mm-mm, I don't watch sports. <laughs> this guy strangled a guy with a belt, and then I guess it like he he passed out from being strangled, and then he set him down, seating with his sitting with his back to a door, and he wrapped the belt around his neck, and then attached it to the door handle. And then he slipped out and closed the door behind him. So the guy is like leaning against the door. And then he like slouches over and sort of hangs himself then from the door knob. Is this like a solve the murder mystery kind of show? No, it was just like a really strange and detailed way of the, this guy in prison killed another guy in prison. Hmm. I'm wondering why he didn't just hang him from something in the room why he did it from the door maybe he played a lot of mousetrap as a kid (laughs) and he was really into like you know as complicated as possible uh, what's that the Rube Gehrig Rube Rubik's Cube (laughs) that's a gruesome murder more tea (laughs) What, you paint someone's face four sides, yeah, different colors, and then them and twist slice them, slice them yeah. carefully. You need a lot of equipment. Twist them. Insert a pin down through the head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, there's a there's a Rube Goldberg device or contraption. I think is like a you. You know, you drop a marble and then it rolls, it, like all sort of oh, yeah. kinetic energy. Like it's one thing sets off, whatever. <laughs> Rube, Rube Goldberg, uh, she was a hell of a hell of a lady making those machines. It's Chinese to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, I talked to a guy yesterday who's leaving Paonia with his family Mm. and it made me it made me really sad now I don't feel so sad about it because it's like he was here for 12 years Mm. he raised two little girls and now they're moving to California and they're basically moving because because there's no work for he's a builder but his wife is a designer and um, there's just you know more work to be had where they're going. Well, don't don't we chase work too? Isn't yeah. It? <laughs> Not me. I run away from work. Oh no, we yeah. don't. But it yeah. made me sad. I talked to him and he was like saying how uh, in ten years he's like I, I moved here probably when I was about your age, talking to me, I'm twenty eight. He said in ten years, uh, about one tenth of your like crew he's like you're part of now like this next crop of people or whatever he's like in 10 years about one tenth of you will still be here that 
Paonia's his impression is sort of a constant cyclical thing. He said the growth rate of the town of Paonia, I guess, is like 1.7%. 1. 1.1? 1. 1? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, and it made me sad, I realized, because I have a romantic notion of this place and of our like group of friends, and I feel like... You want to grow old with me. <laughs> yeah. Basically, yeah. I'm worried that you're going to leave. We can drink really hard, we'll grow old fast. <laughs> That's what a lot of people around here do. Yeah, we smoke a lot. <laughs> yeah. But it's weird uh, to, to have a shifting perspective. I, I realized that I had this, like, because this place is so different from what I was used to, I thought it was, like, special. And it is special, but at the same time, it's not. It's just a little town kind of in podunk colorado you know and it has some things that a lot of little towns don't but i guess when you look at it that way of it being this constant sort of turnover of people sort of coming and getting excited and then sort of gradually getting disillusioned and moving on or i think i have a concept of like this great sort of momentum building and i guess i'm i'm wondering starting to realize that that is a lot of that is my own perception and that the reality is that you know maybe it's always been this way maybe there's always been new people coming in and a sense of excitement but at the same time people kind of dropping out on the other end of their cycle is the revolution coming and well, is it going to happen here well okay I certainly have thought a bit about what you're talking about uh, just now. I was also thinking about other things, but I was listening to you a little bit. Like women and stuff? Yeah, yeah. So, but also like at least 5% of my brain was with you. So I gave it some That's thought. And now that I've given it some thought, I'm going to speak with authority on it. Great. Um, of the you know, 1,500 people that live in this town, I think there's probably 100 people that anybody would consider in our crop mm-hmm. um, and then I think there's that are that are active in mm-hmm. any way and then I mean there's a few people on this street actually mm-hmm. that just basically you never see they never do anything and they're just they're, they're high right now um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like 10 in the morning mm-hmm. and they've already cashed in on today right. they're done right. um, <laughs> well Sunday give them a break Chris uh-huh and <laughs> And then there's probably 200 people that are active in the, you know, that are literally our parents' age. Right. Um, okay. And I got to see about 50 of them yesterday that I'd never seen before. Faces I'd never seen because I went to uh, hear the state senator gave a little open house thing. Um, and of course... Was that a Wiseheart? Wiseheart, yeah. yeah. And of course there's nobody there besides me and Sarah Sauter. In terms of people... Uh, of people generation. under 100 years old. <laughs> and, and that's because we both are you know, doing environmental campaigning at the state level. Right. So we really want to, like, make sure we know these people and they know us and blah, blah, Right. But other than that, nobody. Uh, except for, you know, the the um, gray hairs. I don't know if they would find that insulting, but people with gray hair. Mm-hmm. Do you find it insulting? You have gray hair. If I call you I don't have hair. gray hair. <laughs> um, so, no, I, I wouldn't find it insulting because I don't. So, um... That's three. That's three hundred people, right? So you got three hundred people, and you're how many people? 
I'm one. You okay? You got you. So you're one. Yeah. So that's a third of a percent. Wait, what? What is three hundred in? That's two hundred. Two hundred older folks. Uh, two hundred. Gray hair is one hundred. Blonde or yeah. Let's curly. call them idiots. Let's just say idiots, and then it's fair to the gray hairs. Okay. okay? Un- you and I are idiots. Yeah. You're 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 part gray hair and part no, idiot. No, no, I'm all idiot. <laughs> um, so. That's that's 300 folks. That makes you a third of a percent of the population of the town that's actually engaged in this place. Right. Okay. So if you hit, uh, what is it, like 12 or 13 percent or something like that in the tipping point, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about it's only 12 or 13 percent that you hit before it's considered the status quo, mm. before something is already happening. It's a moving train that people are feel like they're behind if they don't get on it. Mm. So... The first thing you have to do is convince me, and that would be two-thirds of a percent. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then there's really only, I don't know, 30 people more that you have to convince Yeah, that that this is a place that is whatever it is, you know? Right. And then it is that. And so um, I don't know where else you can go. Mm. Where, uh, uh, if the number is that small. 30 people, like, you could do it today. Right. The revolution is today. Right. That and, is, and, and that is what I love about this place is the scale of it. Yeah, so it's big enough to to do a real, to have a real impact, and do things that feel like a valuable contribution to the greater human cause. Yeah, and small enough to be able to do it today. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so and to know and recognize the face and life story of everyone you're involved with. Yeah. So yeah. The revolution is happening. Or it's not. Right. Or it'll be a cycle continuing. But I think one of the keys probably, uh, no offense to anyone with kids, but I think that if you have kids, um, that that becomes the project that you grow in Paonia. Yeah. Paonia is like a garden and you have your yeah. project and yeah. it grows things. Yeah. And if you have children, it grows your children. Yeah. And if you don't have children, um, it either does nothing or it grows something else of yours um, or that you contribute to. And I think that that's why there's 200 and 100 because the 100 are like dropping off the map having kids mm. and the 200 already had kids so they're totally invested in growing something, something for the future but there's no sense of globalization or or you know connection in the same way that we understand it in people like 60 years and older they, they just don't right. they don't get it Right. They don't get it. They feel like here we are in our rural Colorado and all that. And you and I know we're like pff, 20 bucks a gas or a phone call or an email away from the rest of the world. Right. It's not a disconnect. Um, so uh, they may feel like what we need to do is preserve what we have here because it's so unique. Mm-hmm. And we know, I know, that what we have here is not so unique because of its heritage. This is totally sacrilegious, what I'm saying, um, to, to folks of that mindset. Mm-hmm. But it has nothing to do with its heritage. Mm-hmm. And it has everything to do with the fact that it's perfect size mm-hmm. for a small group of people to be here and have a tremendous impact on the rest of it. And then mm-hmm. the rest of it is large enough to have an impact that makes us feel fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here, here. But if you have kids, you probably are going to find it's a really nice place to have kids. Really nice, little, cute, small town. And you'll work a job, and you'll make just enough to raise your kid and pay your rent and not save anything. And then when they're old enough to go someplace else, you'll go, 
we should take him someplace where right. there's more opportunity for us to make more money because we're getting right. in our forties. Right. We don't have any retirement put away. Right. This is kind of reckless, and right. our kids are kind of small minded because they're in a tiny town and they don't travel right. much because we don't have money to travel. Right. So I guess I'm I'm trying to figure out in my mind if there is, if that is a loss, if or if there would be something to be gained for, uh, by the place supporting this, for example, family that's moving to California to stay, to like allow them to sort of take the next step to feel secure and fulfilled and for their kids to be able to kind of step into that, those teen years and not feel trapped or be able to go and come back or, or whatever. Like, does that, it seems to me like maybe that's kind of the missing, that's like the hole in the, the two groups that you describe. It's like, is that people, those people that have, uh, yeah, have maybe have a young family or whatever it is that, that middle life between like youthful experimentation and then like the second coming of that when you're down the road and you've done your bit and, and now you're, you're looking to, you know, rediscover your creativity or something. And there definitely is. There's a wonderful crew. And I can see it, like, from my mom's perspective or from people of her age, like, how cool this town would be to come in, especially if you're if you're single or whatever, and mm-hmm. there's, like, a kind of a scene that you can go out and dance. a hot dating scene yeah. in that age group. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's funny. It's a funny... Uh... It, I was amazed at how... Um, affected I was when I first uh, saw that, you know, talked to this guy and, yeah. and saw his family and saw that they were leaving. So yeah. I guess it's because, simply because they seem like they're bright, um, you know, intelligent, open-minded people. And it's just, it seems sad that they go. But then on the other hand, it's like, maybe the scale is this delicate balance and them leaving opens up space for you know, somebody new to come in. It does. I think you definitely throw it in the air. And I think it's more like a six-sided die than a, than a two-sided coin as far as you're right. going to get something that's as good or better. Right. And then there's a lot of folks around here that probably don't enjoy themselves here, don't enjoy the community, don't participate. I mean, I think it's the and majority. Yeah, and they stay. Because um, <clears throat> they don't know what else to do. Right. Um, but, I mean singularly addressing this like middle age kind of thing. I think having something like a sister city would be really healthy Hmm. someplace where if you could go someplace internationally and it was a sister city to this place and Mm. you had some sort of, you know, special welcome just in the same way that we would specially welcome. And, you know, we would love to do that from a specific town, 1500 people somewhere else in the world. That would be really cool. And give like a cross cultural experience. Maybe the high school kids have an opportunity or go back and forth or something like that. That could be cool. Definitely giving the opportunity. Um, you know, there's a, there's a girl in town here who's getting into med school. She didn't, she went to high school. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, she went to college over in the front range or whatever, but, but, she did not feel like the high school here was lacking in any way, but she took advantage of every opportunity to travel, went internationally for a period of time, like during high school for part of her classes and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think having those opportunities available 
alleviates any stress about alleviates some stress about the school you know not being able to provide a whole education mm-hmm. so yeah i mean that's why you're running for office right is to try and address some of these things mm-hmm. in november mm-hmm. and we all thank you for that I'm gabriel roberts for running for office yeah i think it's gonna be great in peonia do you Town think Council. I need to get circumcised? Do you think that's They'll important? do that on the okay. on the inauguration, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's a tribal town, 12, 1,500 people. I could put that on my uh, on my poster. It's just like a added, you know, spice event. <laughs> <laughs> Ceremonial <laughs> circumcision before primaries. <laughs> I don't think there's enough people for primaries. From what I hear is that there's uh, fewer people wanting to take the seats on city council than there are seats. And I think there's only five seats. So <laughs> it's pulling teeth to get people to represent each other around here, which which kind of speaks to a certain extent, I hope, to that you know community of Native Americans yeah, that right. don't believe don't in the hierarchy. It's shit. like, I, I actually, I don't want to represent you personally. Like literally, right. I wouldn't want to represent you. I'd say... Why don't you just come with me? Right. And I, for that reason, I think that this would be a perfect town, perfect opportunity for true direct democracy, an experiment in yeah. true direct democracy. I mean, keep the town council, keep them doing exactly what they're doing, but parallel to that, with no weight whatsoever at first, because it's just an experiment, we go ahead and pretend that we have a direct democracy, and you want to, you go to the library every week, and you read the things that are being voted on, and you vote. Everybody votes on everything, or you just give up your vote, which is fine too. You don't have to vote on anything. You just don't have any right to complain, and you don't have any right to put forth any, uh, you know, propositions of your own if you don't have a history of voting. Direct democracy means anybody can propose things, and yeah, but only if you have worked up a credibility of actually participating. Huh. Like you can't just sit here for two years and never vote on anything and be like, oh, I got an idea. How about everybody wears no pants and then go <laughs> and propose that? You have to like. Participate in the drama of governance in order to have the opportunity to put your own voice in there, uh-huh. like your own voice in the form of a proposal of some kind. But yeah, everybody votes on everything. Cool. Everybody that wants to vote. Right. Voluntary citizenry, and maybe only thirty people end up running the whole town, but that's more than five. Right. And everybody at any moment has the opportunity to go and start participating, and they don't now. So. They don't now because it's limited to. Small town, town council. council, yeah. I mean, who are folks that represent? Um, but the fact that there's zero competition historically for those seats shows a total lack of interest mm. in that structure of governance. Mm-hmm. These folks, myself included, are not interested in having five people represent the 1,500 of us. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm sure that most people, including myself, are interested in having an administrator or two. Mm-hmm. to take care of daily tasks mm-hmm. but i'd like to vote on that person's salary and on their obligations mm-hmm. and participate in their hiring mm-hmm. um, and check in on them they're mm-hmm. my employee after all right mm-hmm. um so hmm. plus i think town hall building is pretty cool and it'd make an awesome rave house mm-hmm. and i'd love to see it like that front counter transition to more like a drug vendor with some <laughs> some jungle juice and stuff mm-hmm. and then the main conference room like we have the blue sage and we have the theater we don't need another public speaking room we could turn that into like a dungeon mm-hmm. you know for raves yeah, a rave dungeon yeah leave the outside of the building exactly the same it says town of peony in the <laughs> 70s font 
Do you think that there's uh, room for healthy growth in this place? Well, I definitely would love to see that 300 number that I made up yeah. of people like out of the 1,500 that participate. And really, that's out of more like 2,500 because it's a lot of the 200 sure. are actually people that live on the mesas around the town. Yeah. I would love to see that double. Yeah. And, I'm, and, I, and I don't necessarily mean that I want to see more young and less gray hair. I think yeah. the proportion is fine. Yeah. You know, two to one. But um, just the, the, the percentage of the population, population is active, yeah. Become, yeah, incre- yeah, the active percentage increase. Yeah, because I, I really think we're running like 20, 25%. Right. Which makes it feel amazing. Again, like the power now, it feels like, oh my God, this place has such community. 20% of the people participate. Right. It's mind-blowing. That is. That's a high percentage. Right. But it, but it, I would like for it to be higher. Even personally. higher. And I would like to um, meet someone new every now and then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Without having to leave town. <laughs> and invent characters for myself to be because there's not enough people for me to get diversity of experience. So I'm like, how about if I'm just this way around this person and then I'll force them to be different. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. Interesting thoughts. Uh, yeah, I guess I wonder how much. Um, it's it's that finding that balance between like investing in a place and having sort of hopes of things coming about and and then just like realizing like oh this is pretty great how it is and just enjoying it you know and not like I don't know I feel like there's part of me that really wants to like put effort into making this place better and I, I want to I want to moderate that I guess not go too far in that yeah because you could get kind of then you could get disappointed and burned out well, or you could just be trying to move the wrong rock. Right. Uh, because you don't know any better. Like when when you first come into something, you're like, I know how to do this so much yeah. better. We can improve all these systems. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you find out the systems that are in place are in some form of balance. Right. And right. you move this, it improves this, but it also removes this person. Now they don't have a job because you just right. automated this. Right. And yeah, the car gets built faster or whatever. Right. But now this guy doesn't have a job, and so what does he do? And now he's yeah. angry and upset, and he doesn't like you, you know? And you thought you were improving something, and you made it worse. Oh, person. Um, there's a movie that I haven't seen, but I've been told about a lot, called The Mosquito Coast. Are we being spied on? I guess so. Um, called Where The Mosquito Coast. Person? And um, it's about Harrison. It's about a movie about Harrison Ford plays a character. He's a, a preacher or something like that, and he discovers this place, uh, Africa or South America or something like that, um, where there's like you know tribal stuff. And uh, he discovers it and goes, "This is going to be great. Like we can bring so much economic development here. We'll set up a resort, and people will fucking love it. This place is beautiful." And he sells the you know tribal leader on the concept. Uh, in theory and the guy's on board but in, eventually finds out that basically 
what he's doing is pawning off everything that's sacred to them. I mean, he doesn't, Harrison Ford doesn't think about it this way. He yeah. thinks of it as like, this is so beautiful, let's show the world. Right. But it turns into prostitution of the, of the place mm-hmm. and of what's sacred to them. And then the actual visiting of tourists, of course, completely destroys their, the sanctity of their place. Right. It's not theirs anymore. It's a, it's a, you know, Hulu dance being done by a college student in front of the, you know, YMA hotel or whatever, yeah. instead of indigenous people celebrating them, their own thing, whatever yeah. that might be, the pig hunt or whatever. And, um, so it's a disaster, right? So you don't want to do that. Yeah. Necessarily. But maybe you do want to do that, which is also fine. Right. Like if you just throw everything you've got completely, you'll get that much back. It might be in the form of disappointment. Right. It might. But but your options are sit idly by and snuff out your own enthusiasm. Right. Or risk to be really really wrong mm-hmm. so i'm gonna sit idly by but i hope <laughs> that you take this on no i i definitely am trying you are yeah. i mean you're you've done you've run in lots of circles yeah yeah and you've already encountered some disappointment absolutely yeah. and feeling of your efforts being wasted and the feeling of like uh friend naropa described like a certain inertia to this place that people after 10 years get tired of sort of pushing against and feeling like they just don't get any support from the system itself. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have to take over the system. There's no, no doubt about it. Um, it's the least sexy job in town. It's volunteer, but honestly, um, this group of the, the, the 200 gray yeah. hairs are not going to do it. They feel like they've put in their civic time and they're here to make the place better a couple hours a week and, and sponsor things at the blue sage and at the paradise and stuff. Um, but they're not going to sit down and have meetings and run the town. And at some point someone's going to have to do that because it's really, um, crucial that that base infrastructure be in place. And there's a, there's a lot of power that you can have if you transition to a home rule town. Because it's a statutory town right now, which means that the people that are on city council are legally obligated to be enforcers of state law at the local level. Huh. That's their so they could say, um, you know, um, we are going to do X Y Z, and the people can say we elected you, and every singleness person in this town signed a petition and is now standing in front of you and demanding you do this. You have to do what we say, and they don't. Their response. Their, their responsibility, responsibility is to the state. They are simply administrators of state law at the local level. If a town or municipality or county feels like it can really truly try to govern itself, it can switch over to what's called a home rule. Hmm. Uh, this is particular to Colorado. Lots of states have it, but in Colorado, it's called home rule versus statutory, and they can become a home rule town, city, whatever. And that means that they get to actually make their own laws. The representatives on the town council are first and foremost legally obligated to represent their constituents. So if you cool. have a petition or something like that, you bring it to them. They're, That's they're bound. Directive. And if you, um, that doesn't mean they always do it. Right. Because the, the, the other end of it is like, well, what if I don't? A lawsuit? Eh, but I'll just quit. Right. And but at least won't. there's not a conflicting right. responsibility built into there. Right. It's very bottom up. And, and on top of that, you can then have... Um, you know initiatives you can you can 
petition the same way you're like, well, no one on city council will bring forth the idea that we should have a marijuana shop. Mm -hmm. They did actually, and it got shut down. But supposing they hadn't or wouldn't or won't do it again, in a home rule situation, you can literally get your thing, you bring it to city council, and you say, hey, look, I'm going to go around with this petition. Here's the language. And the town attorney, although I think it's a contracted attorney, reviews it and says the language is good. If this became law, it would be enforceable. Um, you know, that's supposed to allow for two or three mar medical marijuana dispensaries or whatever the heck they want. And then you walk around uh, door to door and you get the signatures. And if you get a certain percentage of signatures, which is a percentage pretty small, it's only 10% of the previous voters, okay. the previous cycle's voters. Uh -huh. So out of 1,500 people, probably 700 voted. So uh -huh. you'd need 70 signatures. Uh -huh. uh, and then you bring it and you present it and it either, at, at your discretion, goes on to the next ballot. Uh -huh. Or goes up for a special election in 30 days. Huh. And so you're like, I want this to be the rule around here, and I got my 70 signatures, and it's going to a vote. Wow. And in 30 days, there's going to be a vote on it. Wow. And you get to actually participate in democracy really, really directly. That sounds pretty sweet. Home rule. Is that happening? Is that is Boulder home rule? Boulder City is. Boulder County is not. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, Denver City is. Huh. Um... No, I can't think of many more examples. Yeah. It gets sticky when you have something like fracking, and you, as a town, um, force your town to ban fracking, and the state says you're not allowed to ban fracking, and so then you butt heads with the state, and that, like Fort Collins, that's what happened. You mm. butt heads with the state, and the state sues, but the town is like legally, it's a, it's a you know, judge's call okay. kind of thing. Um, this concept of having home rule towns, municipalities, counties, um, but heads with the state is actually a, um, a legal method or political method of revising state law. So let's suppose you wanted to ban fracking here. We said we ban it and the state says, oh, you can't do that. We're going to sue you and say, well, you know, up yours. We're doing it anyway. Sue away. It'll look terrible because we're this tiny little mm -hmm. nice mom and pop place with organic orchards and you're going to sue us mm -hmm. over the stupidest thing, right? Uh, if at the same time Fort Collins does it, Boulder does it, five other cities do it, mm -hmm. um, then suddenly it's a movement. And the state can sue everybody one mm -hmm. at a time. But also it starts to infringe upon one of the state constitutional lines, which is that the state's constitutional laws must actually represent mm. the, cool. the people of yeah. the state. So you can't cram a law down the people of the state at the state level, you can't cram it down the state citizens' throats, something that everybody's opposed, opposed to. Right. And having these home rules, like, clearly have their own agreed upon. Right. So you start the movement, and if you have that momentum, you can actually then, at, at the higher level, a judge looks at it and goes, actually, the problem here is not that these towns are doing something illegal, but that the state is behind the times and needs to revise its law. Cool. And so you can change state law that way. Has that ever happened? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a big movement now. It's called... Uh, uh, is it? Schumann... Seminary. It's a sort of grassroots political revisioning. Organic. Yeah. There's a cool group called CELDF, Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, out of Pennsylvania. And they do seminars where they teach weekend workshops called democracy school 
um, where they teach people in mass about this whole process and about how to like take back your government. Huh. And I went to that, but um, they're they're successful uh, in the in Pennsylvania specifically, but also uh, New York some success, and then huh. they're also working out here in Colorado. Basically, it follows wherever environmental yeah. nastiness is. Yeah, but um, it boils down to representation at the end right. of the day. You still have representation. You know, you right. still want to have people in office that you have more faith in their decision making than your own. Right. And if that's not a possibility, then direct democracy. Right. Which is why I like direct democracy. <laughs> yeah. I think we should at least try it. We don't have to follow it. We just try it. Yeah. Just do it parallel to everything else. And see what happens. I think that would be fun. Yeah. I'm sure I told you my idea to run for office, be in office, but just be a total stooge of the public. Be like, I have no opinion. Everything I need to vote on goes out in, you know, on my website, and you click, and then I, cl- I vote whatever the most votes are. Like, I am a representative only in the sense that I just report whatever you all voted on. And that's it. I have no opinion. I like it. I'm a hollow, hollow soul. Yeah. A politician. But. Without an agenda. Yeah. That's kind of a pure form of. Pure politician. Being a politician. Yeah. <laughs> well, it'll be interesting to see how it, how it unfolds. How many years I'm, I'm here. How many years it takes to get sick of the place. And if, uh. If there's progress, as long as the weather's like this, though, it doesn't really matter too much. Yeah. You know? I don't really give a shit (laughs) (laughs) about all them issues. But somebody ought to. I don't know. It's a weird thing. It's like, how much do you try to participate in? system and how much do you just ignore it completely well it depends I mean does it does it benefit you or not right and if it's benefiting you you know then then you do it more because it feels good yeah and you're like ooh I push this button I get a Snickers uh and if not then why the hell would you do it right right and so you could say okay well it's benefiting you because of the roads and stuff but I don't really like the roads <laughs> I don't really like fresh pavement. <laughs> I, I actually like... I like it bumper. Old and broken. Yeah. And like then people go slower and safer anyway. Yeah. You know? And yeah, you pop your tire or whatever, but then you have to go into the tire shop and, and talk with those old guys and, you know, like you have to live. Yeah. You have to participate. Or yeah. maybe just walk. Right. And like the infrastructure, this is a micro version of infrastructure that you would do for New York City. Uh-huh. It's just a tiny version of it. You got strips of houses and roads, and then larger roads and stop signs and all that. And it's like, eh. yeah. <laughs> why? Why don't we put a house right there yeah. in the road and just and then just everybody can just park over at the library or something. And when you want to drive somewhere, you walk over to the library and you get yeah, in your you car. Get a car and go out of town. Yeah, yeah. Have some tuk tuks maybe. To yeah, around. some bike taxis. Yeah. You know how many miles per gallon those get? <laughs> All of them. <laughs> yeah, at <laughs> least. 
Right. I mean, why not? And and that in and of itself, I mean, getting rid of this model, this like copy-paste suburbia model, like just ignoring that and just building on top of it and going like, nah, we're doing something totally fucking different, is exactly the thing that would make this place different and worthy of preserving and more attracting of the more interesting folks and more deterring to folks that are looking for something more copy paste like I want a town that's like the town I came from yeah (laughs) you know but in order to do that to put to tear up this street and put houses on it or you know sheep wagons and Mm -hmm. (laughs) you gotta you gotta run the town right gotta get them open up them rules yeah. So you either be them or or home rule it. So what does it take to be on the town council? Um, Besides th- being circumcised, th- I think you have to be alive still. Uh-huh. I think <laughs> I'm not positive, but I think so. Um, As in, like physically, uh, drawing breath. Yeah. <laughs> and exhaling too. Exhaling. Um, Do you have to be able to walk? No. <laughs> no. Um, I think there's a meeting every two weeks. Uh, it's volunteer. I think the mayor gets $200 a month, but I think he's the only one that gets paid. Uh, what? It... That's his salary? Mm-hmm. It's volunteer. He's a volunteer mayor? Oh, he gets $200 a month. Seriously? Is that through $6 a day or something like that? Yeah. Why does he... Really? Our mayor gets paid $200 a month? Yeah. Okay. So, and he's, he's what, the president of the town council, essentially? Basically, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then there's five other seats, something like no, that? No, I think there's four other seats. Okay. I'm not positive. There could, be, there could be six other seats. It's going to okay. be an odd number. Uh-huh. Uh, and you sit there, and every two weeks, I mean, obviously, you can't be expected to do a whole lot in between the meetings, so you're really just going to meetings and reviewing things. <laughs> and in a more active community, you'll have people coming in with proposals, problems. To the meetings, to the meeting, I'll say, oh, hey, listen, you. my neighbor, this and that, he's raising pigs, mm-hmm. you know, it's like in town, and he's mm-hmm. got 30 pigs in his backyard, mm-hmm. and do we have a law against this or something, because here are the problems, mm-hmm. or whatever, or you come in and say, I want to raise pigs, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, are there any laws against it, like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you're managing the town and the, and the direction and the vision, so the way that you do this in a way that's not just totally ad hoc, so that you're making decisions that are consistent with mm-hmm. your your predecessors and can create some sort of vision for your successors is um, you have a, a comprehensive plan right. which takes into account the actual land and what the different land uses like if we're going to have pig farms in town they're going to be over right. in this area and you know lots of kids are over here in this school zone so we don't want like that truck yard right next door and whatever and you kind of keep an eye on that stuff no no the whorehouse is fine and then um and then you have a strategic plan. And then you have a strategic plan, right. And that that is your sort of um, where we're going with all this. Right. Like in this case, the comprehensive plan might say this area is exclusively for residential. Mm-hmm. And in the strategic plan, it might say this area, which in our comprehensive plan is identifi- identified exclusively as residential, is uh, going to be most uh, best serve the rest of the town by being small, home, dense mm-hmm. residential. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, we foresee pulling up this road, mm-hmm. getting the cars out of here, mm-hmm. and putting in another street. you go with the tiny houses. Let's get some tiny houses yeah. in here, and everything will be fine. 
We can fit 50,000 people in here. Paonia doesn't have a comprehensive plan or a strategic plan. That's correct. correct. <laughs> That's correct. So it is ad hoc decision making. Um, but you can imagine with volunteer town council, who would ever do that? I mean, <laughs> these are these are $100,000 pieces of paper, literally, you know. Oh, the... Each one of those. Right. I mean, the those are... The time and research. The and time, money. research, and education, and, and whatnot, and it takes to be able to put that together right. intelligently. That's if you're doing pretty standard, like, here we are, a suburb of Denver, and right. we want to have a strategic plan. You get the consultants and all that. If you're doing something creative and innovative and you want to try new stuff, yeah, I you mean, can spend all year on that. Oh, easily, easily, you could have three or four people spend all year. So, on do that. you personally think that like that is important? Do you think that like that's worth that's something that's worth doing, or do you th- or do you think that like maybe the systems are going to change such and? It just doesn't matter. No, I, I think comprehensive and strategic planning is crucial. Yeah. Um, because it gives you a platform for which to run for office. Right now, nobody runs for office on a plat. I mean, they might. They might be like, I'm going to be as pro-coal as possible, or I'm going to be as anti-coal as possible. But, but those aren't platforms with anything behind them. There's no plan. Right. So. Could an independent group... Put together a strategic plan. I think that's the only way it's going to happen. And then you just give it to the town council, and they have, they approve it, and then it becomes then you, they're bound to it in some way. Yeah, but probably you'd have to take it and say, "Elect me, and I will see to it that uh, the the bridges that need to be crossed with people who don't like some of the things in here, everything will get crossed, and we will at least end up with something somewhat resembling what I'm presenting here as a strategic plan for the town." And you have to run for office, and you have to be in there, and you have to meet with them regularly. And then the, the you population can... of the town votes on the council members? You run, yes. It, and that's what, every... Every two years. Every two years. Because there's, you know, three, two, three, two, three, two. You don't switch out the whole town council. Mm, mm-hmm. Right. Hmm. But, see, the thing is, if you have a group of people that's willing to get together and do $100,000 worth of work, volunteer, mm-hmm. you really have just created yourself um, an alternate... Town council, council right. that is way hugely willing to contribute to their community, right. um, and so you can all try and get the office, or you can just make yourself your own little consulting firm, mm-hmm. profit or nonprofit or whatever, um, and just get recognition from the citizens in town that that's what you do, mm-hmm. and that you do it in a way, and present it in a way that people actually kind of prefer, and then they maybe hold the council members' feet to the fire and say adopt this plan right and you just sell it yourself directly instead right. of let yourself get elected right and then right enact it right weird you need a plan yeah. it's a big the whole place is a no, big company no weird the yeah. existing idea of a of the town council as mm. it is and not having a yeah, so this is really, really crucial shit now. Um, it's always crucial, but, but what's happening now is um, state laws. This was a nice little presentation by the executive director of the Department of Natural Resources. Charming fellow. Mm-hmm. Yesterday uh, told us that um, the uh, oil and gas uh, task force, which is what happened because Hickenlooper um, didn't want anything to change as far as oil and gas. He's very pro-oil and gas. Representative Polis. He's the senator for this. Uh, Hickenlooper's our governor. 
okay. Governor Hickenlooper um, wanted everything to continue status quo, business as usual, because the place is getting fracked to hell, uh, and that's good for his own, for what he wants. Mm-hmm. And um, Representative Polis, who's our you know representative, U.S. Congress representative, one of them, um, took the stance of being very anti anti um, unlimited fracking, mm-hmm. and wanted to see. It either stopped or extreme regulation on it, whatever. And so, and so, um, those two, there's some backstory there, but it's complicated. But the point is, is that, um, they negotiated and both pulled their proposals off of the last ballot last November, the last minute, end of October, they pulled off both of their things. One of them was to go like total pro fracking and one Mm -hmm. of them was go total anti fracking. They both pulled out. Mm Mm-hmm shook hands and said, okay, instead of just trying to do this with the swipe of a pen, mm-hmm. um, we will um, create a task force of experts and people from industry and people from enviros and people from law firms and all that kind of stuff, put them all together and they'll, you know, come with a plan. Um, For and, the state. Yeah, that's that's more comprehensive than just no fracking or total fracking. Mm-hmm. They'll, you know, dissect it a little more. And so that task force was created... Um, and uh, that this is a typical methodology for for um, assuaging the public uh-huh. uh, sure. to feel like something's being taken care of without actually taking care of it. Right. So a lot of folks are very skeptical of you know who was on that sure. task force and how heavily weighted it was towards industry, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all that argument aside, which is very you know valuable, and I um, have strong opinions about that process. All that aside, um, the end result is that they are pre- um, presenting to our state Congress uh, lots of new laws, regulations, many, many changes, right? And one of them is that um, while the local town, city, municipality, whatever, county won't have the ability to prohibit fracking uh, in its area, um, it will have the exclusive right to negotiate the terms of that fracking within its jurisdiction. So you have the town of Paonia, for example, still will not be able to say no fracking in town limits, but the oil and gas industry professionals will be required by law to negotiate an agreement with our town council people, our five volunteers, um, before they can actually even get their permits to do the drilling, so these they have to get the okay essentially from the from the locals. Now, while that sounds like oh good, it's giving us power, really what you're talking about is some really slick dick, high profile negotiators talking to Peonia Town Council members, and I think you could negotiate that in about an hour, yeah. um, because the town has lots of needs. And Fuck. believes just about anything. I mean, they're just not the skilled negotiators that that you would want. Yeah, uh, we have enough trouble, as does uh, pretty much everybody in a representative system, having the person that represents them even be good at that, mm-hmm. let alone negotiate their health, safety, and environment on their behalf. Mm-hmm. In fact, and this goes into a personal derailment, the idea of your representative as a negotiator for you really offends me. Um, and you see it constantly when you go to any you know county commission hearing or something like that. Anytime any industry or development is there, 
the the county commissioners or the city folk um, they feel it's their job somebody tells them this which is absurd it's their job to negotiate the best possible deal with whatever isn't come in front of them which means you continually slide down the path of development right. and industry right. as opposed to ever say sorry that's not a right fit for here right move along right. never does that happen everything is seen as a negotiation from wow. day one everything yeah that puts it in immediately in a framework where if you accept that framework you're already giving you, up, giving up on a long enough timeline you and lose all your ground there is just an illusion of right. discussion Right, so you have staff folks that are getting, not here, um, but in a larger area, you have staff folks who are being paid to negotiate, to, uh, you know, investigate all the details and put together all the paperwork. And so you have thousands of man hours that go into the background to give the commissioners or other representatives the scientific or legal authority to negotiate the strongest possible benefit for the town. Mm -hmm. But everything is seen as, you know, a good bang for your buck. and by that point, it's not until, usually, it's not until the point where a deal has been struck and it just needs to be approved that the public hears about it. Right. So you go to this public hearing and you've got your representatives there that you elected who have been invested in this for the past nine months with thousands of county man hours that you paid for gone into this, all based off the premise that you're going to negotiate in the first place right. with something like fracking industry right. and it's it's uh i think it's it's not appropriate for yeah. the representatives to make that call and to allocate staff time to anything um prior what's the the just briefly what's the basic uh system or or elements at play in negotiating fracking is it what who owns the land generally and what does the people negotiating what do they have to offer to a town and where does that come from right so the the key thing here that screws everything up is there's a thing called mineral rights and so the mineral rights are not the land rights they're underneath the land (laughs) some ambiguous amount underneath (laughs) there they are and so if you if i own the gold Uh that's under your house here um even if you own the land and this house on the land you can't prevent me from accessing my gold and that's a that's a current situation. Because that's my property. It, just because it's located below you, it's my property, and property rights trump everything. So who owns most of the mineral rights to the land around here? So the federal and state governments owned all the mineral rights. And just and sold, have sold off the them. land. No, have first. sold the mineral rights, not the land. They've sold uh, the mineral rights to the county and the county will need to raise some money so they'll sell it and they'll be like we get the money now they're probably not going to come here for another 10 or 20 years so then you have 10 or 20 year old or 100 year old mineral rights that are owned by Anadarko a giant fucking multinational fracking corporation right Mm -hmm. oil and gas extraction corporation and they own there you go the gas under your home so, and you cannot legally prevent them from accessing that, even though they don't own any surface land anywhere within a hundred miles. Wow. They have a right to their property, which happens to be buried under your house. Wow. And so they can pull up with a truck, drill a hole right in your front yard or in your garden and go down and get their stuff. And that's it. And so, uh, what they have to negotiate basically is, um, 
we, you know, we'll, we'll buy your home or we'll, they don't have to, but they're just trying to get you out of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so they just throw money. They throw money and they look for weak spots. How, what's your school system like? Oh, I hear the schools aren't so hot. How, how would they do with $10 million mm-hmm. right? a year? Mm-hmm. You know, um, you have a lot of crime. Well, maybe you need more police force. You only have one cop. Oh, that's weird. You had to downsize. You don't even have this, this big debacle with the town. Uh, right, not being able to support its own police force, right? You've got one cop and we just got rid of the secretary at the front desk for town hall and we have a volunteer town council. I think a few million dollars would go a long way towards improving governance around here, don't you think? And you're a volunteer negotiating, right? And I've done this negotiation, playing the role of this guy, the the Anandarko guy, or, or any noble energy, any of these fucking giants. I've done this thousands of times. I do this five times a day. What do you mean? Like, I negotiate with the, the peons like yourself who are uh-huh. volunteering, and I can, I can really sell it to you and be like... Oh, right, right. This is, this is you know, right. this absolutely is. the best thing that you can do. Absolutely. And there's no doubt in your mind. And there really isn't. Right. And if you've ever had somebody like really expertly negotiate you, right. you know that it's not until like a few hours or the next day when you're like, you fuck, what did I just do? Yeah. I just got fucked. Yeah. yeah. So. Wow, that's pretty scary. Right. Oh, is that, that's all over the country? Is this mineral rights idea? That's federal. Yeah. Yeah. So, so a lot of the, um, a lot of the mineral rights that are more easily accessible. It's harder to access access on public on private because people don't want that. Yeah. So it's much easier to access if it's on land that people don't live on. Right. So all the mineral not all but many of the mineral rights under federal and state land gets leased out, and then they have a really easy time yeah. because then they only need to use BLM land, Bureau yeah. of Land Management land, or U.S. Forest Service land to access for their mineral rights. Yeah. And generally, uh, BLM and Forest Service are um, you know, pretty pretty open territory, sure. especially BLM. Yeah. So it doesn't cost much to get yeah. your permits taken care of and yeah. make a few promises on paper and then go in and get your stuff done. Yeah. But that drive is towards like energy produce produce. And so, gas. is there a lot of uh, mineral rights owned by corporations that are not currently being pursued? Yeah, the vast majority. So it's just a matter of time. Yeah. Well, depending on the consum- consumption. We stop using fossil fuels and all of that's worthless. And right. then no more happens. Right. We continue using fossil fuels. We continue to invest in fossil fuels. You know, you have power plants now that are only a few coal power plants being built, but a large number of gas power plants, natural gas power plants. You know, you spend $20 million, $50 million on a gas-powered power plant and your payback period is not a year. Right. You have to keep that thing running right. for 30 years maybe, maybe right. 50 years right. before you even return your investment. So unless you're going to renege on your investors, right. can't do that. You can't do that. So now you have just invested yourself for the next 30 to 50 years or whatnot in gas extraction. Yeah. At a cheap rate, which means a lot of supply, which means a lot of gas extraction. So what are the gods that we pray to for this kind of business? Uh, which which talk one? To the Indians. See who they prayed to about this kind of stuff. You Spirit. Mean, you mean to provide more gas and profits for us? <laughs> <laughs> no. To take care of this, to, to get our mineral rights back. 
Yeah. Or we have, like you had said, we have a good comprehensive, we have a good plan in place for the town, and then we at least have some, some ground to stand on, uh, or some instruction. Well, yeah, the town itself is so small here, right. in this particular case, that I don't think we run the risk of having any fracking. Right. Because you can go two miles right. horizontally, and you, two miles across the whole town. Right. So if you really wanted mineral rights that were literally buried under your house here, a company could easily set up on the other side of 133 and right. just Get the same stuff. frack right under your house over here. Yeah, barely feel it. Just a light, a gentle rumble. <laughs> gentle. It's like the coal train coming through at night. Yeah, yeah. In your gut, too, as you drink nice toxic water. Um, <laughs> but um, but outside of the, the North Fork here is, is really hot for uh, for oil. So here's the catch, right? So on the, on the eastern side of the Continental Divide, um, the shale oil there is very natural gas heavy. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of, uh, I think I'm getting this right, I'm, like in reverse. I'm pretty sure this is right. So so when you drill down and you frack, you drill down, you put high pressure, it cracks shit up, it fractures the rock underneath, and then stuff blasts out because it's under pressure, because the earth is sitting on it, right? So what comes up is a mixer of natural gas, petroleum oil, and other kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Natural gas is mm-hmm. immature petroleum oil. Mm-hmm. So you take coal and you keep crushing it, it turns into natural gas. A couple million years later, it turns into petroleum. You just keep it under pressure and heat and it just goes, 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 and petroleum's the end game. Mm, so shit. it's it's the most dense crude yeah. oil. Um, natural gas is just a step behind. Is it liquid? It's liquid under pressure. Huh. Yeah, when it's coming out, it's liquid. Huh. So um, that comes up with uh, with crude oil, mm-hmm. right? And it's a mix. On the eastern slope of the Continental Divide, um, which is where Denver is. Denver and all that, the Front Range, um, you have, it's very natural gas heavy. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge boom over there for natural gas exploration and, mm-hmm. and Weld County and all that kind of stuff. Um, what did you say? Weld? Weld County is the county oh, okay. that's infamous for having, you know, complete open door policy to fracking and getting as much of it in there as possible. It's, it's pretty awesome. It's like Disneyland of toxins. <laughs> you should check it out. Wear a mask. Um, so, um, over here, we're very oil heavy. Oh, really? Right, crude oil heavy. So, that was of little concern when the price of, uh, when the price, uh, wait a minute, I think I'm getting it backwards now. Anyway, it started off, natural gas is very expensive. Natural gas dropped down four times in price because of all the fracking that was going on. Mm. So then, um, just, you know, two or three years ago, most of the wells weren't even, they would take the oil and natural gas as it came off, and the, the natural gas would expand into a gas. If you mm-hmm. let it out of pressure, they let it out of pressure and they'd flare it off. So you have a torch on Whoa. top. It's burning all the natural gas that's coming up because they only only the oil is of value in right. that moment. Right. And the other stuff isn't even worth keeping compressed and transport. So you just poke a hole in the earth, expose natural gas, and burn it with a big ass flame. And collect a little bit of crude oil. Yeah. Now it's switched. Uh, oh, this is getting backwards. Anyway, the point is, whichever way it is, natural gas to oil, um, it's switching again. Mm. So that now um, the drive is um, for petroleum, uh-huh. which is drawing uh, attention back to the western slope. To okay. do. That's why you see all the fracking permits 
for stuff like Bull Mountain that's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, this is for oil. Mm-hmm. The irony there is that even though this toggles back and forth between natural gas and oil based off of whatever the profit is to be made and the waste product is just burned off on site mm-hmm. into the open air, it's always pitched as natural gas, no matter what. Because natural gas has gotten branded as this transition fuel, this mm. clean burning fuel of the future. But half the time, they're not even going for that. They're just going for straight old crude oil. Wow. So, crazy. not only are we looking at fracking the fork, but we're fracking it for oil. Wow. Which is well over 100 year old technology. Right. So, you really need to let go of for everything except spaceships. What oil? Yeah, like we we don't we don't need to be burning that. It's it's too much of a problem. Right. Uh, you know, it's the it's the most dense fuel we have. Great, use it to get to space, but um, we don't need that dense of a fuel for anything else. We don't need to have ten gallons in your car take you four or five hundred miles. Right. We don't need that. We can have uh, ten gallons of a less dense fuel in your car take you a hundred miles. And then stop and get a nice sandwich and fill up again. You know, <laughs> meet some people. Yeah. You sit in your car for eight hours straight. It's not healthy for yeah. anyone. It's like, you don't need the fuel to be that dense. Huh. For that matter, the fuel tank could be twice as large. It wouldn't make a difference. Right. We don't need rocket fuel right. to go to the grocery store. Right. It's not worth it when you can do, you know, a solar electric or something like that that has minuscule impact in comparison. And gets you there just as you won't even know the difference. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of sick when you think about that, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, are you done fucking rattling on about environmental bullshit in this podcast? Oh, I just made all that up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are you going to go frolic in some springtime blossoms today? I am going to frolic in. Um, a go smell some apricot filming blossoms. Filming a performance. Yeah, that's right. And, um, uh, yeah. Are we going to get apricots this year, you think? Apparently it happens once every seven years. Oh, wow. That explains why I never heard about it. Apricots. They only bloom once every seven years? No, well, they only, they bloom so early and then they, they get killed by a frost. Oh, we should cover some apricot trees nearby with like a thing. Yeah, the other Gabe has one. And there's, I think there's one right back here that I was smelling the other day. But I don't know. I don't know how you tell when it when it when it freezes. What the tree? How you tell if the tree got fucked or not? Why don't we just throw an electric blanket over it uh-huh. on an extension cord uh-huh. any night that might freeze, which will probably be one or two, if any. Yeah, that's what you do, and then you'll be eating them apricots. Mm. It's good eating. Not nothing like a peach, but. It's all right. You can dry them at least. Mm. Well, thanks, Chris. <laughs> it's been real. Yeah. Some good, some good stuff. Oh, were you recording that?